if you're in this business this long and you come out of national, you've got some chops. You know what you're doing. It felt like a clubhouse. It was a haven, a broadcast haven. There was so much to be gained from that environment. I think I spent more time at national than I spent at any of my offices. We talked with each other. We went to the West Bank and had a drink with each other. There was something tremendously human that was lost. The summer of 2002, when national video closed. Like the end of, a, of an era. The fall of National Video Center in the summer of 2002 can be attributed to several forces. From poor planning and personality clashes, to the advance of desktop and digital technology, to shifts in workflow and TV marketing priorities, etc., etc. I'm Barry Fitzsimmons. Welcome to Promo Cowboys. In this podcast, the third edition of the fall season, I'm going to wrap up the story of National Video Center best I can. As I said at the top of my last podcast, if you haven't listened to parts one and two of my national tribute, stop here, go and listen to them, then come back to where you are now and hit the play button. Now, there are countless stories that might have been told about National, and countless people that might have been included. I've heard from a few National insiders, and I've fielded some great suggestions. People to talk to, stories to tell... But, as Promo Cowboy might say, the line's got to get drawn somewhere, and this here's where we're drawing it. So, to start to bring us full circle, we'll hear first from longtime national editor Barry Gleiner. I was there from summer of 84 to the day they closed their doors, uh, which was a little over 18 years. Though it ended uh, on a low note, I can never erase that part of my life as being definitely the best part of my professional life and and a good portion of my personal life as well. When I say low note, I'm referring to the business aspect and and how the business actually closed down. You know, I partially blame it on the folks who were running the company at the time, but it was also the nature of the way the business was starting to turn, uh, certainly in New York City, and that was in the summer of 2002. And National Video was a very large production and post-production company. And there was a huge amount of downsizing going on within the business from editing platforms and equipment to personnel. Do we really need 300 people on staff? Can we work with 50 people on staff and hire freelance as we need them? And that was a big turning point in the business. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be there as a staff person all the way to the end. I still had an active client base. So that really kind of kept me secure until the, till the last day. But, you know, it was sad in, in the sense that it was literally in like two or three days, uh, the place shut down. On a Wednesday, we had um, folks coming in and tagging equipment with numbers for auction. Jeez. By Friday morning, the, the doors were padlocked. Wow. You actually showed up and the doors were chained shut. You know, the funny thing is, is it was on a Friday I walk up from Penn Station to 42nd Street and 10th Avenue, and sure enough, there's these three guys with the dark sunglasses and the black suits standing there, and the doors are literally heavy bolted chain padlock. And I said, listen, I'm a manager. I need to get into the the office. And he goes, I can't let you in. I said, is there somebody who's letting people in? And as we were talking, somebody walked by who saw me and came to the door and said, you got to let him in. They had people in the lobby from this company, which is like a security company, 
And whoever was coming in was being escorted to where they wanted to go. Uh, they had to be going to a place that had their own personal belongings in there. Uh, so they only let me go to edit room G, which was the room that I was working in at the time. I had a closet in there with some personal belongings. They gave me one hour to clean it out, and they said then I had to get out of there. <clears throat> I tried to walk over to our tape library to grab a couple of shows and things that I had worked on. There were three guys standing there saying, absolutely not. Everything became the property of this uh, foreclosure company or whatever, whoever they were. I don't even know. You know, It was some legal security firm. I just grabbed my two bags of, of whatever I had in my room and walked away. I did go to the auction, which was like two weeks later. It was at some uh, hotel in Midtown. And there was my edit room dismantled, sitting there stacked up on like, you know, like moving crate type things. You know, the, my big digital switcher was up for sale for like $2,000. That was like a $150,000 piece of equipment. Uh, the editing system, the effects boxes, all the equipment that I was using. I mean, like it was sitting there, had my fingerprints and my, my coffee spills on it. And I tell you, I think that's when I got the most sentimental. That was it. Oh, the liars will be running in that great day. Here's Tina Potter, who ended her national partnership before the company closed. And on something of a high note. I think I was one of the only people that actually left as a partner at National that didn't have a lawsuit. <laughs> they gave me a beautiful party when I left, a bowl from Tiffany I still have. It's like, you know, the end of, a, of an era. Everything moves on. It, it was a really long time ago, and I'm constantly reminded how long ago when I work with people who are significantly younger than I am. <laughs> but it was, you know, a time in my life I'll certainly never forget. You know, Hal Lustig ran a big, loving, wonderful facility, even though he was at heart a hell of a businessman. He was a great character, you know, and characters are sort of missing. Hal built it up to be this just, you know, premier production, post-production facility. And uh, now it's a theater, isn't it? It's a I think now it's a, theater, I, I think it's a, uh, I know one side, the side at, at 41st Street is a pod hotel and it's got that spectacular machine that stores your luggage. <laughs> It's a Yotel, and the, the luggage storage machine is something I would, I've stared at for like 15 minutes. I've literally just watched the thing because it's, uh, you know, big <laughs> machinery. I'm a, I'm a guy. What can I say? I do feel the same, but I have moved on. And I left National before it closed, so I wasn't there when they put the locks on the doors. This is National Editor Gary Vandenberg. You know, I left, I almost came back a, a third time, 99 or 2000. Yeah, that would have been a bad time to come back. Right. I remember being right. there. My last experience there, I was like, wow, this place is no longer what it once was. And it was around that time. Around 2001, I did an extended gig right. for one of the Rainbow Networks called Metro TV that were relaunching. I mean, relaunching a network is almost harder than launching a network because there's so many existing points of view that that are going to get in the way of you just getting your work done and i remember it being a very um trying experience and i was thankful to be at national video center for the production of the of the spots which were revised and revised and revised over and over and again 
Sure. And I thought to myself, we're killing the soul of our campaign and this relaunch with all these revisions. <laughs> but it was a it was definitely a sign of the times. This is the new paradigm right. for right. for network launches. I should right. say network network relaunches. But um, I remember thinking, gosh, I don't know if I'll ever be back to national again. You so understood the national gestalt. Here's editor Ron Harris, affectionately known as the godfather of National Video Center. It, it was a haven, a broadcast haven. Truthfully, what killed National is that Hal took a 25-year lease, and in the end, it was either buy the building or find another space. I mean, the building, the building itself, National Video Center at 42nd and 10th, no longer exists. There's a high rise there. How, how does that make you feel? Look, I get a little sad. I get a little sentimental. Here's Barry Gleiner again. There was a time when they were starting to tear it down and they had all the scaffolding up and I happened to walk by. I was like, well, you know what? It's done because <laughs> that building is now gone. I'm not that way. I, 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 don't, I don't look backwards all that much in, in any part of my life. Here's Peter Fish, composer, audio designer, and founder of National Sound. I used to have a studio on 45th and 11th until about two or three years ago. And when I went by that corner then, I would look and go, oh, look, there was my office. But look, I remember once taking Jennifer to see my elementary school in Providence, Rhode Island, and I drove up to it and it was gone. It was a condo. I got over that pretty quick. So they could knock down my elementary school. They could knock down Mansion. Did you ever hear the history of Frank and Jesse James and the four younger boys? But the dirty little coward, the chotty chotty Howard, he laid Jesse James in his grave. There are a couple people who've come and gone at National who are no longer with us, chiefly among them Jerry McKenna. Great friend. Uh, loved and missed. Uh, a talented, talented graphics guy. He is a heck of a guy. I, we had a lot of laughs. The thing I remember most about Jerry is he, he got his hair cut at this place called like, Cuts for Kids. <laughs> He would go into this place with like seven-year-olds up in Rockland County, and they would cut his hair there. And it, and it said, Jerry, why do you go there? And he goes, well, they cut my hair right. <laughs> I love Jerry. Jerry was like, a, you know, he was a national spirit. Here's Gary Vandenberg again. He's a great guy to have in the room. Jerry was just very collaborative, workhorse, creative as all hell. Yeah, and it was always like, okay, Jerry's here. We're going to have a few laughs today, you know? Yeah, you always laughed when Jerry was there, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. no. another guy who, you know, really understood what this business is. It's not brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's, it's supposed to be fun. That's why I think most of us got into this. There goes that train. Red, blue light behind. If you're at all familiar with my novel Promo Cowboy, you may know the book is dedicated to the memory of the original Promo Cowboy, Greg Trimble, who lost his bout with cancer in the late 1990s. Greg Trimble was the inspiration for my book and this podcast. A freelance writer-producer and a regular client at National Video Center, it's sad that we lost Greg in his prime, and it's doubly sad that so few people seem to remember him. Thank God for Gary Vandenberg and the K-Scope. So I was working with Greg on a current affair spot. I know you remember how layered those spots were, and this was in the analog days, so you were you know, going back and forth to build the layers, and you once a layer was down, it was like it was in cement. I'm new to the K-Scope. 
Greg doesn't really, he knows that it's new to our sessions now. We just started using it. None of us were really trained. Maybe one or two of the editors were trained on K-Scope. But basically, as Herb Oland used to say, it was earn while you learn. So you, you learn the device and you're making money for the company and for yourself. And we're doing this thing and doing it very heavy, heavily layered. And Steve Dunleavy was the uh, reporter at the time. And we misspelled his name, <laughs> but it was four layers down. Uh-huh. Now, K-Scope had a memory, so we had to undo it all and then redo it. And I didn't know how the memory worked. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm struggling. Now, I knew kind of what I did for the effects, and I could get close, but I couldn't match it exactly. So I was rebuilding stuff, and Greg... He, he was a man of few words, but the words he spoke were choice. He looks at me and he goes, Gary, you don't know how that works, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he was great. He was one of the few producers that I could work with that we didn't have to use language. Yeah. He spoke to me in sound effects and, and gestures, and I was like, oh, and I would do it, and Great sessions, great collaborative spirit. I, I love that man, and I'm really sad he's gone. Greg Trimble, the original Promo Cowboy. This is a good time to remind listeners that this Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by my crime novel, Promo Cowboy. Inspired by Greg Trimble, written by Barry Fitzsimmons, and available at Amazon, Kindle, and your finer bookstores. Promo Cowboy makes a great holiday gift for clients, friends, and pesky relations, especially the ones who still don't understand what you do for a living. I have relatives like that. So, after the sad demise of National Video Center and the entire post-house business model as we knew it, what came up from the ashes? To begin to answer that, I'm turning back to Peter Fish. We've all gone backwards. I'm talking to you in your home. You're talking to me in my home. By the way, apologies for the sound quality. I don't see 150 people a day like I did at National day in and day out. We've now retreated into little compartmentalized digital islands, which we connect digitally through the web. And that's got a certain joy to it because I could be mixing in my pajamas at midnight and no one knows the difference. I could be sending you a check track from France, no one knows the difference. I don't have to get in my car and drive 28 miles down the West Side Highway to go to work in the middle of a snowstorm and still get my work done. It's a lot of good to be said about all that. On the other hand, there is no creative interaction. And I laugh because all, all the neighborhoods, my Brooklyn neighborhoods, they have all these like shared workstation joints, you know, where mm-hmm. you go supposed to plop down your computer and sit next to some guy you don't know. And that's supposed to promote synergy. And I think I don't know. That's kind of forced because the guy next to me may be creative as hell, but if he's creative in terms of doing structural engineering, I'm not sure how that impacts my world. So, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of camaraderie and interactivity and going out for a drink afterwards and all those things that working in a workforce environment create, not only in our business, but in every other business of that era. And I think we've as a, as, a, as a society have abandoned that concept to, to, to some degree, if not a large degree, and 
I mean, I have friends in the in the uh, financial field who work for Morgan Stanley who call me and go, I'm working from home today. And I'm thinking, you're working for Morgan Stanley and you're working from home today. Well, I work from home every day, but so does most everyone I know. Hmm. Every video editor I interact with, they're at their house. Every audio designer I interact with, uh, every voiceover artist. Yeah. It's just a different time. Yeah, it really has changed. I'm, uh, I, I do a lot of my work on site still, uh, generally in-house at various networks when I'm working for the networks. And the one thing that doesn't seem to take place there the way it once did, and it may have something to do with leadership, is a sense of collaboration and support. Also a sense of a hierarchy of creative talent that sort of filters down everybody's sort of on their little islands even the even in the in-house model it seems and it does seem like it's sort of every man for himself to a degree just a little bit which i find a little sad i have to admit it's very sad but it's the structure of of what we've come to accept as the norm that we can all do it ourselves and we don't need to go outside of the of the realms of our own little box our own little map you know one of the one of the downfalls of the audio post business is Video editors, and this has always been the case, but it's worse than ever. Video editors thinking, well, I can mix this in, in Avid. I can mix this in, in Adobe. Well, you can. You don't necessarily have the skills set to, and you don't even necessarily have the tools to. But you can. I asked Peter and everyone else who participated in this national tribute, what have we lost? And more important, for the people who weren't there, what have they missed? We missed it all. It was it was um, creatively satisfying. It was interactive. Looking backward now, the sort of primitive way we worked without internet, without you know, the earliest days, not even with cell phones. I mean, everything was byte messengers. I remember when faxes came on board, and we thought this was the most amazing thing possible to get a rolled up piece of paper that we didn't have to wait for a bike messenger to bring you a contract or something. But for everything that time has advanced relative to those skills that we all take for granted on those, those technologies that just seem like part of our landscape, what was lost was the, the touchy feely part of it, the interaction. There, there was something tremendously human that was lost. You know, musicians actually had to come in and perform voiceover talents actually had to come in and, look at the script with you. Clients actually had to come in and be pains in the asses in front of your face. People had to order $100 lunches that they had no intention of eating just because they could. All these things are lost. Having your client, your boss, the so-called director pass out on the couch while you're shooting and, and basically just picking up the baton for him and running. That's what we've lost. One of the things I miss most is that expansive ability to roll around on your chair. Gary Vandenberg again. From the switcher, you know, back to the edit controller, over to the audio, well, the audio board was over here, but but you, you could roll around, and I had a much more open feel to my body as an editor back then. Now, I'm, I'm squinting at a monitor, I'm leaning forward, I'm tight, I'm, you know, it's a, a very different world, and I miss that that openness, because I felt like uh, I was mentally open as well. So the rooms from that regard were, to me, they were they were special because you had that. You didn't know it until you, you lost it. You know, I always felt like sometimes when you're turning on a room, 
you feel almost like you're, you know, Apollo 13 or something. You know, you're, you're flipping switches, you turn stuff on, and you're about to shape time and space. <laughs> Houston, we have a promo. You don't have to sit with an editor and a producer next to each other anymore. Ron Harris again. You do your cut somewhere and send a file and you get reaction to it. And then you go and do the fixes and it's done. So what did everybody miss out on? They missed out on the the very close relationships editors had with the producers. You know, I I don't want to sound like a, a, a pissed off old man, but I mean, we grew up basically together editing 10 12 13 hours a session with each other you know i have a quick perspective which is places like national and there are others like them but for the most part places like national it was always about the sense that you were together collaboratively with your editor and you depended on the editor to bring something Mm -hmm. that you had not thought of and each of you sort of covered the base that the other could not Absolutely. And my sense is that what's lost is that between the two or three of you, or however many guys were also in the room with you, you were more than the sum of your parts. And now you become a widget. You know, those people who are cutting spots on their own, uh, you know, at their desktops and stuff like that, aren't collaborating. They're not, they're, they're not playing off each they're, other. Because there, there's no interaction anymore. And the only interaction is when you send you know, you're cut to somebody and they react and send back their changes. Such a slam against my talent made me hotter than a mink and I swore that I would write it for amusement or for kink. It was nothing but a When I was working at Broadway Video back in 2009, I walked into one of the editing rooms and there on the floor in the corner on its side was the kaleidoscope console. <laughs> I mean, literally on the floor in a corner on its side. And I said to the editor, I said, Dave, that is so disrespectful. What is that doing there? Why is the K-scope lying there in a corner on its side? He said, well, if it bothers you that much, take it home. Oh, my gosh. Well, I took home the K-scope operating console, and I have in my finished basement a little corner which is a tribute to broadcast television as I knew it. I had the edit controller that we control the tapes with. I have the kaleidoscope control box, and I have a title maker. That's amazing. We talked with each other. Yeah. We broke bread with each other. We went to the West Bank and had a drink with each other. But that's over. It's over. I'd rather celebrate the fact that I was part of it rather than lament that it's over because it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved it all. Listen to all of season one of the Promo Cowboys podcast at iTunes and my discussion with street artist Billy Kidd, a former HBO designer now partnered with the NBA, meshing his graffiti with NBA gear, clothing, merchandise, and working with some of the biggest stars in sports. It's called The Art of Basketball. The Art of Basketball was the first time that the NBA had fine art as part of their licensing program. The NBA puts on an all-star game every year, and they create an entirely new court for that weekend game. They came to my partner and I and said, hey, would you guys you know, like to take this court? You know, and, and we were like, yes, 
and then we made a canvas out of it and we had graffiti artists paint uh, basketball players or basketball centric art. We're so blown away by how the players themselves reacted to the artwork because it's on the court, it's on what they play on it. There was so much respect uh, going both ways from the player to the artist. So I came up with this whole concept of uh, transforming a famous basketball player into an artist uh, and we hired Dwayne Wade put him on the court, the 2011 All-Star court that we that we own, and gave him buckets of paint and basketballs, and he went Jackson Pollock all over the court. Uh, it's a whole new category, and then now with player-generated art, that also became a new category within the genre. Billy Kidd and the Art of Basketball. Now, let's hear some parting thoughts from Barry Gliner. Things change. I change. I've grown with my career. I've grown with the industry. The whole industry of television has changed. Uh, if you don't stay on top of that change and go with the flow, you get left behind very rapidly. I know that happened to a lot of people, uh, some by choice and some because they couldn't keep up with the super rapid change in, in technology and style. The, the demands on a TV uh, video professional in the 80s and the 90s was much more intense, I believe, certainly technically and operationally. The, the equipment has come so far uh, on, on digital linear editing and even graphics that a lot of the work is done for you in the background by the computer. Uh, the analog days of editing, it wasn't just a mouse and a keyboard. There were levers, there were handles, there were joysticks, there were buttons, there were knobs. It was very mechanical. And it, the, the amount of real estate that was taken up by this equipment, yeah. it would fill somebody's entire uh, one-bedroom apartment these days in Manhattan. Uh, that's how big these edit rooms were. Now you could put an edit room on your lap, yeah. you know, on a, on a, in an airplane seat. And today with digital linear editing, you could keep changing your mind every five seconds, and it's easy to change. Apple Z. Apple Z. All right, go backwards. One one space and try it again. Yeah. Analog days of editing. Once you committed that to tape and you want to go back and fix it, you kind of started uh, from scratch. Let's start from the beginning again. And I can tell you how many times I've done that, which made eight-hour sessions go 16 or 20 hours. But, you know, hey, that's that was the nature of the beast. On a $10 horse and a $40 saddle, I'm going to punch them Texas cattle. Come a kaya, yippee But I think from a people perspective, maybe we worked better as team members, where today people can work a little bit easier as individuals because the equipment allows you to do that. There's a different style of collaboration that happens outside the room itself. It's sort of all decided in conference rooms and through uh, presentations and that sort of thing. Sure. I have to admit, what I feel like we have lost to a degree and what they have missed, they being the people who weren't part of this, was that sense of you know a, a handful of people working together to create a product and working off each other. And there seems to be less of that to me. Um, when you have sort of guys working solo as producer editors, sometimes they're also writers. You know, it was a more it was a more organic kind of a flow then, and now it feels a lot more rigid and and super digital. Obviously, yeah. You can look. You can almost compare it to when we were kids going out playing 
you know, together in the streets uh, with our bikes and running around. And, you know, we knew we had to be home when the sun went down kind of thing where kids today could be sitting in their bedroom on their computer gaming, but they're not interacting in person. Right on, mighty rider, you got your reins in your hand. Well, right on, mighty rider, you got your reins. You know, I just think you're missing that camaraderie, that that creative inspiration of working with people and building things together. Tina Potter again. You know, you miss that human interaction because of the growth of, you know, technology. It makes you so much more independent. And, you know, you can hire producers now that can do it all on their laptops, you know, and you don't need post houses anymore. And I'm sure in 10 years, there'll be something else that'll make it even more impersonal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be making promos on our phones, basically. They're already shooting movies on iPhones. You know, my poor husband, who's a camera operator, he's like an, a dinosaur. I just went through a whole exercise where I was interviewing potential social media managers. Mm-hmm. And they, every single one of them had trouble in the interview because I believe they were so used to looking down. Yeah. They weren't used to looking across the table and talking to people. Yeah. They were all awkward. They were all kind of introverted. They had a really hard time relating on a human level. Here's a final word from Peter Fish. A bit of a pep talk for promo cowboys. We're still as good as we used to be, both you and me, Barry. We're both as good as we used to be. It's in our blood, and we both have mortgages to pay. Indeed. So, and we'll do whatever pays the rate. Or, or half the rate. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take half the rate. But short of that, you know, look, I look back on the times that we're talking about with the same view that you do, that there was so much to be gained from that environment. And yet at the same time, it's gone. It's just gone. I mean, the very few host houses that are left, Broadway video, so on and so forth, they're shells of what they used to be. The future is in our computers and in our living rooms and in our spare bedrooms and in our garages. And we all have to, like, man up and put our big boy and big girl pants on and get on with it. I had such a wonderful, wonderful career as an editor for 26 years. A final tearful thought from the godfather himself, Ron Harris. And going over it now and seeing the people I worked with and the clients I had, you know, it's such a thing of the past and it's so over. Okay, let's leave National Video Center as we like to remember it, on its best day. I imagine everyone who is a regular at National has memories like that. Here's Tina Potters. Getting off the elevator and going into the the edit room that was like right to the right of the reception desk, which was like the premier edit room. I remember working with Bob Gleason in there and Hengefeld in there and, you know, getting my bagel off the cart. And and just sitting in there and, you know, people coming in and out all day saying hi and chatting and just doing great work. And 
ordering lunch and just hanging out. And uh, I had hundreds of days like that. It just was a really great, creative, familial, you know, it felt like home. Tina Potter, speaking for us all when she says National felt like home. This is Barry Fitzsimmons, thanking you for listening. As always, this edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Available in hard copy at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. And find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. I want to thank my guests today, Ron Harris, Barry Gleiner, Peter Fish, Gary Vandenberg, and Tina Potter. Also, thanks to the Pond 5 Public Domain Project for all the archival pieces you heard, and freesound.org for all the instrumental music used in this podcast. The Promo Cowboys theme is Six String Rag by Holly Hall, a.k.a. Four Barrel Carb. You're listening to it now. If you would, please rate this podcast in iTunes. Subscribe and share on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Please. And don't forget to check out my Promo Cowboys Facebook page. You'll find a few pics from some of our national friends there, plus some of the building itself back in the day. Reach me, as always, on Twitter, at Promo Cowboy. Also on Facebook and LinkedIn, at Barry Fitzsimmons. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was edited and produced by Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining me. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, sure was a whole lot he could have covered, only he didn't. Just saying. Take us out. <laughs>